Father, it's the start of a, uh, of a new year, uh, not, not the actual calendar year, but uh, it's the start of school, it's the start of uh, getting back in the swing of things after a summer break. And Father, we thank you for your uh, provision over the last few months. We thank you for the work you've done. We thank you for the care that you have provided for us. Uh, we're launching in here to some fall months, and then it gets real busy with the holidays. We pray, Lord, that uh, as we, uh, in a sense, are, are starting a new semester, but we've only got three, four months left, and then this year is over. We pray, Lord, in the time that we have left for this year, that we can, uh, we can see significant things accomplished, that we can make some progress we pray, Lord, that uh, in areas that you want to develop, that we would remain teachable and open to you. Thank you for these guys who come out on a weeknight to study your word. And Father, I pray that you would uh, instruct us. I pray that you would make things clear. I pray for every one of us because we all have blind spots. We all have areas in our life we don't even have a clue that we've got a problem. I've got blind spots. These guys have got blind spots. We may have people praying for us that we would see those blind spots. Um, Lord, uh, sometimes uh, the, the only way we see things that we're not aware of, and I said sometimes, but the only way we see things we're not aware of is when you open our eyes. So would you instruct us? Would you teach us? Would you help us to focus on what you have for us? Uh, teach us, Lord. Instruct us. Make us better men. Uh, as we fan out in this community, may we be salt. May we be preservative. May, we, uh, you, may you use us in a way that you will stop the decay around us. That's our prayer. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Come on in, guys. We've got room for you. There we go. Just, just, just come on in. Just, just walk right on past me. There, there's, there's chairs up there. Um, you just have your ticket stubs. That'll help a whole bunch. Yeah, we're gonna have to figure something out on how we're gonna do this, don't we? We got a car with its lights on in the parking lot. We got a car with its lights on. Well, hey. Uh, Gray Lincoln. Gray Lincoln. CO2 PRM. CO2 PRN. Well, if that was my car, I sure wouldn't get up because everybody would be knowing it was me. So, hey, uh, just, just be advised. All right, guy, we're starting. You got that tape rolling? Got my Garth Brooks microphone on? I'm set. I don't like this microphone. I don't like it at all. I can see it out of the bottom left corner of my eye. And I just want to smack it, is what I want to do. It's like a fly that's just kind of hanging around. But again, a lot of changes, a lot of adjustments. Uh, my favorite cereal is Kellogg's Frosted Flakes. Amen. Uh, I've been eating those for 50 years. There's a lot that could be said about Kellogg's Frosted Flakes. But, but no one can top what Tony the Tiger said about Kellogg's Frosted Flakes. 
Tony summed it up this way about Kellogg's Frosted Flakes. Tony said, they're great. They're great. And many of us think they are. Um, some things are greater than others. Some kings are greater than others. Uh, when you look in the Bible, one of the greatest of the greats, one of the greatest kings was Solomon. Now, we kicked off last week what we're calling, uh, as a series, uh, Living Lessons from Dead Kings. Uh, there is a section of history in the back of your Bible, in the Old Testament section of your Bible, that is about um, a group of kings. After uh, you had Saul and you had uh, uh, David and you had Solomon, and then after that, there were uh, 40 kings. Uh, of those 40 kings, uh, eight are called good. But all of those men render lessons to us who are alive today. Uh, a case could be made. Now, there's no question spiritually that David was the ultimate king, even with all of his flaws. But in terms of wealth and in terms of prosperity, the guy that you have to look at, and the guy that you have to say was great was Solomon. Now, we're not going to study Solomon tonight. Uh, last week, we studied Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Tonight, we're going to look at a guy by the name of Jeroboam, who we referred to a couple of times last week in our discussion about Rehoboam. But in order to understand and set up the life of Jeroboam, We've got to go back and start with Solomon. We've got to go back to the previous king. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. And we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at, at Solomon, who was great, a great king. Queen of Sheba came and visited him, saw all that he possessed, saw all that he built. She had heard of his great wealth, his great prosperity. And, and, the, and the scripture says that there was no spirit left in her. She was absolutely overwhelmed. She, she couldn't take in the magnitude of what this man had. Uh, he had been richly blessed by God in his life. God's hand had been upon him. Uh, if anyone had a great start, it was Solomon. He came out of the blocks with, with, on all cylinders. He, he came out of the blocks with the afterburners on. Uh, he came out of the blocks uh, with his turbocharger. The, if anybody had a start, it was Solomon. But like so many men in the Bible who started strong, Solomon uh, did not finish strong. Uh, somewhere towards, oh, later in life, he got off course. He got off kilter. It, it's amazing how many men in the scripture who fail spiritually fail in the second half of life. There's a pattern, and we'll see it as we go through these kings. Uh, many men who start strong, they don't finish strong because they get diverted. Somewhere after 40, they've done well, they've had a track record, uh, uh, you can be doing well in your marriage, you can be doing well with the Lord, and then what happens is some decisions are made, and you think you're okay because you've got a history. And you think you're okay because you've got some experience. And you think you're secure because you're not a rookie. 
That's what happened to Solomon. He thought he was okay, but he wasn't. In 1 Kings 11, we begin to read of his downfall. And we begin to read of what took him down. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Uh, what would happen here is, and we talked about this a little bit last week, they would uh, strengthen their kingdoms by making alliances with other nations. Now, this was common practice, but, and God knew it was common practice, but God had specifically said, that's not how I'm going to run this kingdom. I don't want the king of Israel to have more than one wife. And if you look at Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, it was made abundantly clear that the king of Israel was not to have more than one wife. Solomon's father, David, violated that. Solomon violated it. And as we're going to see, that ultimately led to his downfall. So he has all these different women. Verse 2, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them. Neither shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. And why didn't God want them doing all these arranged marriages? Because these women brought false gods with them, and God knew that it would turn the heart of the king. Indeed, that's exactly what happened to Solomon. See, when all else fails, guys, read the directions. Just read it. And then obey it. What was it that God said to Joshua? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it both day and night. Don't depart from it to the, to the left nor to the right. Whenever we do that, we get ourselves in trouble. The, the word of God could not have been more clear to Solomon. He knew it. This guy had a gift of wisdom. Wisest man who's ever walked the face of the earth. Who was man. Jesus was God-man. But as it goes for men, Solomon was the wisest man. But isn't it amazing? Uh, years ago, Josh came in. He was probably six or seven. And he, uh, he said, hey, Dad, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, hey, Dad, wasn't, uh, wasn't Solomon the wisest man who ever lived? I said, yeah. He said, but didn't he get all screwed up? I said, yeah. He said, how can a man who's so wise get all screwed up, Dad? I said, well, that's a good question. But I said, I think here's the answer, Josh. There's a difference between wisdom and obedience. See, wisdom means you have great insight into life. Uh, wisdom means you have great insight into applying truth. But see, wisdom doesn't guarantee that you will obey the truth, does it? That's how Solomon got all screwed up. Now let's read further on about this guy's Decline. Verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And it says it again, his wives turned his heart away. For it came about when Solomon was old. How many of you guys are old? All right, we've got some guys here that have come to grips with who they are. <laughs> you remember when, you used, when people used to call you young man? You remember that? I do. I remember the first time I pastored a church and this guy called me young man. It kind of hacked me off. But then again, I was 13, so I, you know, I was a young man. Now, I was 27 right out of seminary, and this guy, uh, he didn't like me, and he was, uh, anyway, he was trying to put me, he called me young man. And I was a young man, you see. I haven't been called young man in a while. This weekend, we went out uh, and did a, at Mount Hermon, a church retreat for the first church that I ever pastored. 
and uh, nobody called me young man. Uh, they were all whispering under their breath, what happened to his hair? <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I could see them talking about me. But you get miles on your tires. That's the way it works. You know, you get, we're changing. We're getting older. It, it says here that uh, when he was old, his wives turned his heart away from other gods or after other gods. And his heart, now catch this, his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of, his, of David his father had been. Hey, David screwed up big time. David had a season there where he was really out of whack, but you know what? He still had a heart for God. When Nathan called him on his sin, man, that guy fell apart. What happened was that David had a repentant spirit because he had a heart for God. Solomon kept going the wrong way, and there was no stopping him. Uh, now you see just how the deterioration sets in. Verse 5, uh, because he goes after all these different gods. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. These are sad words, guys. These are tragic words. Um, seven. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Uh, these different gods, they practice all kinds of hideous uh, worship expressions, including uh, the burning of children alive to these gods. There have been archaeological digs at some of these sites, and they have found ashes, and they have found uh, transcripts. They, they know that children up until the age of four years old were thrown alive into fire by their parents uh, uh, to demonstrate their, uh, their adherence and their worship of, of, of these gods. Um, look at verse 8. Uh, Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord God was angry with Solomon. Because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. That's unbelievable. Is it not? The presence of the Lord appeared to him twice. Life-changing event. Can you imagine such a thing? I mean, this guy knew God. God had revealed himself to this guy. It's amazing how hard the human heart can get, isn't it? It's amazing how hard your heart can get. It's amazing how hard my heart can get. And it can happen very, very quickly. And it doesn't begin with one leap of big disobedience. That's not how it happens. It, it starts with small decisions that seem apparently to be uh, insignificant. But they're not. They're not insignificant. But, but what happens is when you start down that wrong road against what you know to be true, that's a slippery slope. And you begin to pick up momentum. And as you begin to pick up momentum in disobedience, you begin to harden your heart and your conscience begins to get cauterized. Uh, remember 1 Timothy 4? talks about that in the last days, many will fall away, paying attention to, to the false teaching of men who were seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron? You know, it's possible to cauterize your conscience. Take a white-hot poker and you just jam it down into your conscience. Your conscience is a nerve. 
And you can cauterize it. When the Spirit of God convicts us, we're to turn to him and ask for forgiveness. But when we ignore him and put him off, and then we ignore him, and we ignore him, and we ignore him, and we ignore him, and and externally keep doing the same things, keep showing up on Sunday with our wife, you know, keep going to Mark's class or somebody else's class or Stephen's class. Everything's, hey, everything's cool. Everything's fine. But what's happening inside, you're going the wrong direction, you see. And as we said last week, what happened to Rehoboam was that he developed heart trouble. That's what happened to his dad, heart trouble. Wasn't following the Lord with his whole heart. Uh, he goes on. Uh, the Lord who appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord God had commanded. Now catch this. Here's where it gets interesting. Because, see, there are always consequences. If you're a believer, you know, we believe in grace. We celebrate grace. It's an amazing grace. But grace does not mean that God will just let you go anywhere you want to go without disciplining you. That's not a good father. You don't do that with your kids. If you do, you're not a good father. If you do, you're a foolish father. Your kids start to get off track, what do you do? Pull them in. Discipline them. You call them on. Why? Because you love them. That's what God did here with Solomon. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you. Now you've got to remember, Solomon just, I mean, this just is one time. This just is a one-time small deal, and he lapsed, and then, you know, oh, man, I'm sorry. No, it was one, it was two, it was three. God said you should have one wife. This sucker had 700 wives. 700 times he went against what he knew to be true. So God's going to tear the kingdom out of his hand. You say, and, and you may read this. Man, that was pretty severe. What he did was severe. I mean, and, 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 and you see what happens is, when we go down that wrong course, the Lord convicts us, and the Lord is trying to get our attention. But if we don't listen, it's like with a kid that's obstinate. You discipline the kid, he doesn't listen. You've got to come on a little stronger, and a little stronger, and a little stronger. You've got to increase the punishment to try and get the kid's attention, right? That's what's happening here. Only this guy has gone, well, it's tragic how far he's gone. Because you have done this, and you've not kept my covenant, my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and will give it to your... Now catch this, we're going to see this in a minute. I'll give it to your servant. Literally, he was going to give it to a servant. It's wild stuff. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son, who was who? Rehoboam. Okay. However... I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So he was of the tribe of Judah. He gave him one other tribe, which was Benjamin. So in the south, as we saw last week, when Rehoboam got into this big deal and he taxed the people and he said, I'm going to be tougher on you than my dad was, the nations in the north, ten of them split off. Now we're going to see that again. So the Lord told Solomon what was going to happen, but he says, I'm not going to do it while you're alive. Verse 14. Now here's what happens. While he, while he is alive, God is going to raise up some adversaries. In verse 14, he raises up a guy named Hadad. In verse 23, he raises up another adversary, Rezon. And then he raises up another guy in verse 26 named Jeroboam. 
So as Solomon is alive, he's got an adversary uh, on the east side. He's got one down in Egypt, and he's got one in the north, from the north, called Jeroboam. Now we're going to get introduced to Jeroboam. Uh, note, if you would, uh, verse 26. Here's where we get rolling now. Okay, we had to get some context. Then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and Ephraimite of Zerida, Solomon's servant. There's that word again. So who was this guy? He was a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow. He also rebelled against the king. Now, this was the reason why he rebelled against the king. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of his father David. So there's some repairs going on. Now, now stay with me here. We've got to lose it right here. Let's jump to 28. Now, the man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior. And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. We've got to stop here and pull this apart for a minute because it's going to explain a lot of things later. Uh, uh, we talked uh, about the fact that Solomon did all these amazing building projects. He did the temple. He did all of this stuff. Uh, uh, Solomon was a building machine. You guys ever heard of Robert Moses? Anybody here know who Robert Moses is? Raise your hand. A few guys. In New York City, if I would say to you, do you know who Robert Moses is? Everybody raise their hand. Robert Moses built New York City. Ro Robert Moses was the guy that put the expressways in. Robert Moses was the guy that put in the Long Island, what do you call that thing? Whatever you call it, I don't know, the road out to Long Island. He was the guy that, uh, uh, he, he was the great builder of the infrastructure. He was the most powerful man in New York. Uh, when uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was governor, uh, he knew that uh, Robert Moses was the most powerful man. Because Robert Moses was a brilliant attorney, what he would do is he would, he would write up and get approval for these authorities. You ever heard of the Port Authority in New York? He wrote that all up. Got it past the legislature in Albany, and it gave him unbelievable power even to have his own police force. Guy was shrewd. Guy was a bully. Guy would clean out neighborhoods in order to put a road through. He'd go, he could go around. He wanted to go straight. Nobody could stop him. Uh, he was a phenomenal builder. A lot of people hated his guts. That's how Solomon was. See, by this point in his life, a lot of people, see, we think Solomon wise, good king. Hey, let me tell you something. Solomon started to lose it because he got so fixated on building his kingdom. Now, Jeroboam comes along, and he's an Ephraimite. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, the Ephraimites were a tribe from the north, okay? And... Um, uh, some of uh, the great leaders of Israel were Ephraimites. Uh, Joshua was an Ephraimite. Samuel was an Ephraimite. But they were a northern tribe. Uh, they, had, uh, they were very proud. They were probably the most outstanding tribe. Uh, they kind of had a chip on their shoulder. Let me read you some background here. Uh, the tabernacle was first located at Shiloh, which is part of what? Ephraim. Um, and for that matter, one of the very first places where Abram built an altar in the Promised Land was also within their territory. Uh, these, these guys were proud. In fact, when Joshua distributed the land, they went to Joshua. You can look this up later in Joshua, uh, in Joshua 17. Because they felt like they were such a great tribe, they should have been allotted more land. So these guys were kind of, you know, these, these guys thought a lot of themselves. 
These guys were, uh, 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 they were con confrontational. These guys wanted to be out in front. When, when Gideon went and had his big battle, they went and confronted Gideon. They said, you should have come to us and told us you were going to the battle. These guys were kind of interesting dudes. And, and Jeroboam was one of these guys. Um, and they didn't like what was going on in the south. They weren't pleased at all what was happening. Because imagine this. Imagine us here in Texas being taxed uh, from Austin. And we're taxed and we're taxed and we're taxed and we're taxed. And so you're working hard and you know, you, you got forced labor. Your kids got to go work in the, uh, in the Texas Youth Corps for a while. I mean, and, and the problem is everything that's being done with your taxes, everything that's being built is in Houston. They're doing nothing in Dallas. See, that's how these guys who are Ephraimites felt. Hey, we're paying all this money. Our kids are being forced to work. And it's all happening down in Jerusalem. We don't live in Jerusalem. So they kind of had an issue, and they were kind of hacked off. Uh, Alexander White says this. Every stone of all of Solomon's temples and palaces and heathen altars was laid wet with the blood of an oppressed and exasperated people. Who's that? The people in the north. The prophet Samuel had foretold all this to the elders of Israel and had gotten very little thanks from them for so foretelling it. Uh, who was king before Saul? They didn't have a king. God was the king. But remember the people looked around and what did the people say? We want a king. Samuel said, you don't want a king. He said, no, no, we want a king. Everybody else has got a king. It's like a bunch of high school kids. So here's what, here's what Samuel told him in 1 Samuel 8, verses 10 through 18. He said, this king will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots and for his horsemen, and he will set their, them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war. And he will take your fields and he'll take your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and will give them to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and will put them to his work and you shall be his servants. And you shall cry out in that day and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Guess what day he was speaking of? Solomon. And that's exactly what happened. He told them what was going to happen. They didn't believe him. And now they're upset. Uh, that's why these guys had an issue. Jer so you had these work crews in Jerusalem. Jeroboam was on the work crew. And he was supervising. And what happened, um, he did pretty well. He did real well. As we start talking about Jeroboam, Let's go back to Tony the Tiger. Okay? What did Tony say about uh, Frosted Flakes? He said, they're great. They're great. Uh, Jeroboam wanted to be great. It was the driving ambition of his life. He didn't want to be average. He didn't want to be middle of the road. He didn't want to be middle of the pack. Uh, this guy wanted to be great. And there were some, and I want to tell you something. He did some things that were great. Most of them very, very negative. Now, as we start working through Jeroboam's life, uh, we're going to see his fixation with being great. All right? So here's the first one. I already touched on it. Jeroboam came from a great tribe. That's your first one. All right? He was an Ephraimite. That's uh, 1 Kings eleven twenty six. 26. Let me give you a second one. Jeroboam had a great 
start. He had a great start. He said, what do you mean he had a great start? Uh, Look at verse 28. It says, this man Jeroboam was a valiant warrior, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, uh, literally he saw that he was a doer of work. This guy got there early. This guy stayed late. He did well with other men. He could work with people. He could be given responsibility. Job would come in on budget, on time. He had people skills. He could work with the Teamsters. He was this kind of guy. He was industrious. He was a hard worker. Solomon saw him. He appointed him over all, catch this, he appointed him over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. This guy, Jeroboam, had a great start. He came out of the blocks strong. Uh, Solomon had come out of the blocks strong. Solomon knew how to uh, spot somebody that had great potential. Um, Listen to what Alexander White says about this guy. It was amid all the terrible oppression and suffering of that day that Jeroboam rose so fast and so high in Solomon's service. Jeroboam's outstanding talents in public affairs, his skillful management of men, his great industry, his great loyalty, uh, all thought, all combined to bring him under Solomon's eye till there was no trust too important and no promotion too high for young Jeroboam. This guy was an up-and-comer. This guy was a first-round draft choice. This guy came on with a signing bonus and a guaranteeing contract. This guy couldn't miss. He goes on and says, And not Joseph and not Moses himself rose so fast and so high as Jeroboam rose. Hmm. Uh, He was quite a guy. Solomon spotted him. Solomon promoted him. And then something very interesting happens. Because this prophet shows up. Remember last week we said whenever there's a king, there's a prophet? And what does the prophet do? The prophet tells the truth. When the king gets off, what would the prophet do? He'd come in, he'd show up, and he'd look the guy right in the eye, and he'd tell him what God said, period. There's this prophet by the name of Ahijah, and we're going to run into him. And what's going to happen here in verse, uh, in, in verse 29 is that Jeroboam, and here's the third one, uh, Jeroboam was made a great offer. A great offer. You know, when you're young and coming out of college and starting your career and you get your first job, you guys remember that? Watch my watch. <clears throat> it doesn't work anyway, but thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, you got that first job and you're working hard, and then you remember the first time somebody asked you if you'd be interested in another job, and it was more money and you couldn't believe it? Uh, you know, somebody made you, they actually gave you, they actually made you an offer. You couldn't believe it. Man, that's great. Somebody else wants me. That's what happened to Jeroboam. Jeroboam got an unbelievable offer. Catch what happened to him. Verse 29. Now, it came about at that time that Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem and that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now, Ahijah had clothed himself with a new cloak, and both of them were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak, which was on him, now catch this, and tore it into 12 pieces. So he just buys his coat at Nordstrom. It's a nice coat. He's talking with this guy out in the field. Takes his coat, whips out these scissors, and cuts the sucker in 12 pieces. You think that got Jeroboam's attention? It got his attention. He said to Jeroboam, 31, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. 
But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. That can be confusing because when it talks about one tribe, uh, uh, Solomon, David, Solomon, Rehoboam were of the tribe of Judah. So they're already there. But I'll give them one tribe, which was Benjamin. Okay? That, that's a little confusing. So you got this coat. You got the 12 pieces. He says, here, you got 10. You're going to get 10 of the tribes. Look at uh, verse uh, uh, 33. Why? Because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, observing my statutes and my ordinances as his father David did. Catch this, 34. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I choose to observe my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. We studied Rehoboam last week. What has happened? Rehoboam goes up to meet with those guys at Shechem, to meet with who? The northern tribes. They say, hey, Solomon's oppressed us. His yoke is heavy. We need you to cut us some slack. He goes and talks with Solomon's advisors. What do the Solomon's advisors, the older guys, say? What they say? Give them a break. You know? Give them a break. Give them some tax relief. This has been a hard deal for them. You'll win their hearts if, if you're kind to them. Then he goes and talks to the young men, and the young men are guys that are his age, that are 41 years old, and they say, hey, you don't want to do that. You want to be tough. So he goes in, and he shows up three days later, and he plays hardball. And he says, you thought my dad was tough. You ain't seen nothing yet. So then what happens? The 10 tribes, the 10 northern tribes, what do they do? They split. Okay. You say, well, we talked about this last week. Yeah, I know, but see, some of this stuff is going on at the same time. All right? Look at verse 37. This is wild. And I will take you, who? Jeroboam. And you shall reign over whatever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you, hey, is, is this a great offer or what? Then it will be that this guy was a kid, some kid without a father from up north in Ephraim. He was a hard worker. He was motivated. never had much. I'll make you king over Israel. Then it will be that, now catch this, that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I, now this is unbelievable, I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. That's unbelievable. 39, thus I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always. Here's this young guy. I mean, you talk about a great offer. This guy had a great start. He gets a great offer. Let me just tell you in advance. He screwed it up. He just flat screwed it up. Now, here's what's interesting. Somehow, Solomon finds out about this deal. Look at verse uh, 40. Solomon sought, therefore, to put Jeroboam to death. But Jeroboam arose, fled to Egypt, to Shishak. Didn't we hear about him last week? Because, see, what's going to happen is Shishak is going to come and show up here in a few years. And what's he going to do? He's going to make war against Rehoboam and come in and clean out the temple. He's going to take all the gold shields. Uh, it's, anyway. So this guy run down, runs down to Egypt, to Shishak, you see. 
And he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Do you see how far Solomon dropped? You know, you know what's happened to Solomon? Solomon has become just like Saul. Just like Saul. Uh, see, Solomon was the heavyweight champ of the world. You know who Jeroboam was? He was the great white hope. Actually, not the great white hope. He was the great northern hope. You go back a couple generations, and who was the king? Saul. And then who showed up on the scene? But when everybody was intimidated by Goliath? And, he, and you know Saul was the biggest man in Israel? Stood head and shoulders above everybody else? Well, who was the biggest guy of the Philistines? Goliath. Would Saul go take on Goliath? No. But here comes this kid bringing Subway sandwiches to his brother. His brother's. And he shows up and, hey, you got the ham and cheese? Who's got the pepperoni? You know, and he, he goes, hey, who's that jack over there? And they go, that's old Goliath. And he's blaspheming the name of God. David said, I'll take that sucker on. Somebody needs to clean that jack's clock. And, and, and Saul won't do it. There's not a man in Israel. David said, I'll take that sucker on. Hey, you know what? I killed a bear. I killed a lion. He had a heart for God. He takes on Goliath. You know the story. He kills Goliath. They start singing a song in Israel. You know what the song was? Saul has slain his thousands. David his, what? Tens of thousands. Saul couldn't handle that. So then what happens? Saul, you see, is threatened. And Saul now is going to kill David. So here's David's kid, Solomon. Great start. Wise king. Jeroboam shows up. Now Solomon, in all his wisdom, in all his glory, has become just like Saul. And it started... with one act of disobedience. I'm going to marry this second woman. And then the third one was easier. Fourth one was easier. Man, when he got into double jet, digits, he wasn't even thinking about it. He didn't even feel anything when the Spirit of God would convict him. It's no big deal. This worries me. This concerns me. Is it you? How many of you guys are over 40? Some of you look it. <laughs> I look it. I look 73. You know, Mary and I are the same age. I'm older than her by one month. And we were out there in California this week. People say, oh, Mary, you look just like you did when you were here 25 years ago. Nobody said that to me. We're both 53. I look 73. She looks 33. Who got the best end of that deal, huh? Well, I did. You're over 40? You're high risk. High risk what? High risk to do something really stupid. High risk to throw away everything that you've done up till now. You see? Because you get comfortable and you get secure. And you're sitting here as long as I'm sitting here. And man, I'd never do that. The week before, I was in Oregon. We're taping this, aren't we? Yeah. So I'll edit what I'm going to say. Um, I used to live in Oregon. And when I was uh, at Western Seminary in Oregon, 
there was a pastor there that had a great influence on my life. Great influence. Not just on me, on a lot of guys. Scores of guys. This man was wise. He was wise. I remember sitting in his office and talking to him. And, and I, had a, I was in a deal one time uh, that I could not sort out uh, uh, I was in a relationship with a, with a great gal, wonderful Christian gal. But it just seemed like we could never, you know. I mean, two years is a long time. And we went in to see him one time, and in about, in about 15 minutes, he said about three things. And I understood completely why that thing wasn't going ahead. Uh, it wasn't good for me, and it wasn't good for this gal. We're both Christians. But his wisdom, this man's discernment was incredible. How many years later? Ten years? Fifteen years? Uh, he, lives, he leaves his wife. This guy was a, a great preacher. Powerful man of God. Guy walks out on his wife, his kids, his grandkids. He's in his 60s. I mean, this guy had 60 years of walking with God. I mean, if someone had said to me, this guy will do it, I would say, there's no, there's no way. And he did it. And I'm an organ. I'm thinking about this guy. And I'm thinking about Solomon. And then you know what I start thinking about? I start, think, I start thinking about me. You should start thinking about you. If it can happen to Solomon, it can happen to anybody. I remember Joe Aldrich saying years ago that, that Satan will will wait 40 years to spring a trap. That's how subtle he is. That's how patient he is. <sighs> okay, we're back to Jeroboam. You guys still there? Are you? How you doing up there in the upper seats? <laughs> Anybody got nosebleeds or anything? Okay. Uh, now we got another one for you on Jeroboam, all right? If you're taking notes. I got 93 points tonight. <laughs> and they all have the word great in them. Here's the next one. Uh, Jeroboam made a great escape. And we already read it. He went, to, uh, he went to Egypt because Solomon, the wisest man in the world, was trying to kill him because Solomon was threatened by this young guy. Amazing. Here's the next one. Let's go to 1 Kings 12, verse 20. This covers ground that we covered last week with Rehoboam. Now uh, Solomon dies. Rehoboam, you got the meeting at Shechem with the northern tribes. Uh, this is, uh, uh, <clears throat> here's what I'd call this one. Uh, in, in, in 1 Kings 12.20, uh, Jeroboam wins a great recall. That's what it was. See, uh, you know how this whole recall thing started in California? It had been building. Been, any of you guys ever live in California? Anybody here? Okay. These guys know. You get taxed to the hilt in California. They kill you. Gas is 50 cents a gallon more in California than it is here because they have all these hidden taxes. Just flat out 50 cents a gallon more. <clears throat> do they have state income tax in Texas? No, they do in California. If you breathe, you're taxed in California, you see. And so Gray Davis, he's in trouble. And I read where he went into office, he had a $9 billion surplus. Now he's got a $38 billion surplus deficit 
And so he's in big trouble. And, you know, people are upset. And then you know what the guy did? You guys live in California. You go to this place called DMV. It's like the second half of the tribulation period. Because <laughs> you've got to go in and register your car. And they can't make it easy. They've got to make it really hard and difficult. And they're, DMV in California, Department of Motor Vehicles, they're legendary. Because, I mean, when you go down there, you take a lunch. I, I mean, you take candles and matches. And you take water. Because you could be there a long, long time. You're going to be minimum. You guys from California, right? You're going to be there a good two hours, minimum, to just register your car. And it's expensive to register a car in California. I mean, major league expensive. So what does Gray Davis do? He's got this, he's got this uh, uh, deficit. You know what he decides to do? Just boom. He triples the tax on cars. Recall. Ray Davis should have gone to a Bible teaching church. He would have read his history. He would have found out about Rehoboam, you see, and, uh, and Arnold Jeroboam, you see. Hey, it's all in here, guys. Kingdom of the, the kingdom um, splits like our civil war. So in the south, and, and you know, everything was set up in Jerusalem. In the south, you've got, now they're going to be called Judah. And you've got Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Okay? In the north, you've got all the other ten tribes, and the northern kingdom is now going to be called Israel. Okay. So, suddenly this guy uh, is king. Now let's go to 1 Kings 12, verse 25 to 27. Hey, this guy, hey, this guy's just had it handed to him. And remember what God said? That he's been made king. Remember what God said? Hey, I'll be with you like I was with David. If you follow me, if you walk with me, I'll bless you, man, beyond your wildest dreams. I mean, nobody else in the history of Israel had an offer like this. Nobody. So what does this guy do? Right out of the blocks, he screws it up. 25. Uh, is that where I am? 1225? Yeah. If I turn the page, I get 25. Here we go. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim. That's where he's from. And lived there. And he went out from there and built, and built Penuel. And Jeroboam, now catch this. Jeroboam said to his friends. He didn't say this to his friends. He didn't say it to anybody. Jeroboam said in his heart, Hey, i got a question for you. What have you been saying in your heart lately? Not to your friends. Not to your wife. Not to the guys that you have breakfast with on Fridays. What's happening here? Is my ear coming off? Am I Okay. He's even got me duct taped in the back. I feel like a hostage up here, is how I feel with this thing. Uh, he didn't say this to anybody. He said in his heart, just him, me, myself, and I. What did he say? Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Here's my next shot on Jeroboam. Jeroboam had a great fear. A great fear. What was his fear? His fear was losing his position. 
his fear was losing his power. Now, wait a minute. God said, if you follow me and obey me, I'll be with you as I was with David. In other words, I will bless you. You have nothing to fear. You won't be defeated in battle. I'll make peace with your enemies. I'll take... But, but, but he, did he think about what God said? You know what this guy did? He forgot the promises of God. He ignored the promises of God. And see, here's what happens. We get into pressure situations, and we tend to forget what God has said. And we begin to think that I've got to take some steps on my behalf. And see, sometimes the steps that we think we need to take are not legitimate steps. That's what this guy did. Now, you say, what was this big deal that they're going to go up to Jerusalem? Well, the place of worship in Israel was in the temple. That's where they were to worship. Well, that was down south. He didn't want these guys going down south because he thought if they go down south to worship, then they're going to remember all this stuff in the kingdom of David and all that. And what's going to happen is they're going to, they're going to realize that, uh, gee, that's where home is, that's where the temple is, and their hearts are going to change. And, 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 and he... Isn't it amazing how our fear can run away with us? And they will kill me. How did he get that? I mean, gosh, they're just going down to worship. Now all of a sudden they're going to kill him. See, this isn't a man who's thinking clearly. This isn't a man who's thinking rationally. This is a guy who is making major decisions based on his feelings rather than what God has said. And see, that's our temptation, isn't it? We face crisis. And we start thinking the very, very worst. And so what happens is we start acting impulsively and making bad decisions instead of saying, Lord, you know, Lord, I come to you. Lord, you know my situation. If you don't come through for me, Lord, I'm finished. I'm history if you don't come through for me. This guy, you know what this guy starts doing? Instead of trusting, he starts scheming. He starts making shortcuts. And what he did... Uh, you know how we said last week about Rehoboam? His father was Solomon, the wisest man, and Rehoboam was a fool. I want to tell you something. Jeroboam was a fool. Because note what this guy starts doing. Out of his great fear, here's the next one, he started committing great sins. Uh, note, if you would, here, verses uh, 28 to 33. So the king consulted. It doesn't tell us who he consulted. But I'll tell you this, he didn't consult with Ahijah the prophet, did he? He made the same mistake that Rehoboam made. You, uh, hey, if you talk to bad counselors, you're going to get bad advice. They did it in the south, now this guy's doing it in the north. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. There's a stroke of genius. And he said to them, to who? To the people. It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Really? And then he says this. Uh, and then it says, he set one in Bethel, and he set one in Dan. This guy was pretty strategic. Because you see, in the northern kingdom, the city to the north was Dan. The city to the south was Bethel. So in other words, wherever you are, I'm going to make it easy on you. If you're in the upper quadrant, you just run around up to Dan. You don't need to go down to Jerusalem. It's a long way. You just go up to Dan. And then you guys, you just go over there to Bethel. 
You see? So he gets two golden calves, and he gets two new places of worship. 30. Now this thing became a sin. Don't you like how the Bible just lays it out? Uh, it doesn't say he was emotionally disturbed. It didn't say that he had a rough upbringing. He didn't say that his father was never there for him. It says this thing was what? Sin. That's what it was. For the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places. Catch this great sin here. He made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. You guys ever read the book of Levi Iticus? Have you? You ever read Leviticus? I was talking to somebody this week who's reading. Oh, I know. Yeah. I was talking to this guy, and he told me, Steve, I'm reading through the Bible in a year. I've never done it before. And I'm reading from Genesis to Revelation. He said, I'm just getting ready to start Leviticus. I said, okay. I said, now you got to be real careful. Because Leviticus, see, I said, here's how you got to read Leviticus. When you get up in the morning and read Leviticus, imagine yourself as a priest in Israel, and you want to make sacrifices to God, and you want to live. You don't want to die. That will help you pay attention in Leviticus. You see? Because in all of Israel... The only people who could be priests were, were guys from the tribe of what? Levi. So what's Jeroboam do? Not only does he set up two calves, not only does he set up two new cities to worship, but he says, hey, how many of you guys want to be a priest? It's like in California, you say, hey, how many of you guys want to run for governor? <laughs> so what do they got, 150 guys? Well, I'd like to be a priest. Yeah. So they got some guy that runs a strip bar. They got, some, they got all these guys coming. Yeah, I'll be a priest. Yeah. Jeroboam says, great, you're a priest. I mean, that's literally what happened. 32, he's not done yet. And Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. What feast? The Feast of Tabernacles that's in the seventh month. He makes up his own feast in the eighth month, and he went up to the altar, Thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priest of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month. This is, this is great. Even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel. And he went up to the altar to burn incense because he wanted to be a priest too. Do you know of any other king before this guy who decided he was going to offer a sacrifice? Saul. And God pulled the kingdom, God pulled the kingdom away from Saul. So here this guy, everybody can be a priest. He says, I think I'll run for priest. Okay. You see this guy's great sin? And once again, guys, what did God promise him? And let me ask you something. What has God promised you? What has he promised me? Huh? Do we get in fixes? Do we get in tight places? Yeah. Sure we do. And you know what we start to do when we get in those tight places? Uh, they're so tight and there's so much pressure that sometimes, you know what we'll do? We'll, uh, we'll give up our integrity. That's what we do because of the pressure. You see? Instead of going to the Lord and saying, Lord, 
I'm in an unbelievable tight spot, and you said you'll never leave me nor forsake me. God, I need you to come through for me here. I, I, I throw myself completely on your mercy. You see, you, you said you'd be with me. He said, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his. Lord, I don't want my heart to be away from you. I want my heart to belong to you. And then you'll strongly support me. Lord, I need you to support me. I need it now. Let me ask you something. When God sees a guy praying like that in a tight jam, how do you think God's going to respond? Do you think God's going to come through for that guy? Or do you think God's going God's to ignore him? God's going to come through for that guy. God will come through for you. God will come through for me. See, guys, we're dealing with the same stuff this guy was dealing with, only we're not running a nation. We're running a family. We're running a business. You see? Same stuff, same issues. Uh, you, you know what we like to do? We... Uh, We're, we're uh, see, this is all about self. We want God, but we want him on our terms. That's how it works. Uh, God doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, Jeroboam's not the first guy to do this. He's not the last guy uh, to want God on his terms. Uh, there was another great leader, a semi-great leader. Some people think he was great. Quite frankly, he was kind of average. His name was Thomas Jefferson. Von Brody, in her biography of Jefferson, says that it was Jefferson who conceived the idea of making his own private New Testament. He would strip away its corruptions, leaving out all references to the supernatural. The virgin birth, the miracles, the resurrection, and the complexities of the crucifixion, including only, as he put it later, the matter which is evidently his and which is as easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. That's what he said. In other words, anything in the New Testament that speaks of the supernatural miracles of God, you throw out. This guy edited his own New Testament, had it published. See, we want God on our terms. That's not how it works. You take God on his terms, period. God says, you walk with me, you obey me, you trust me, and I'll bless you. Uh, you don't negotiate with God. Uh, you, you, you don't work deals with God. It's God and his... You know the problem with Jeroboam? Jeroboam never loved God. Never loved him. Knew about him, but he never loved him. He never had a heart for God. I'll give you another one on Jeroboam. Hey, guys, is this a little depressing? I, I find it depressing. Uh, what we were doing this past weekend, we were doing this church conference, and we were doing it at Mount Hermon. Some of you guys have been to Mount Hermon. Uh, Chuck has a conference for Insight for Living every year at Mount Hermon. It's uh, in Northern California. It's in the Santa Cruz Mountains, about an hour and a half south of San Francisco. Uh, you're only about 30 minutes from the beach there in Santa Cruz. And uh, up in the hills, uh, it's, uh, it's among the redwoods. It's a neat place. It's been there since 1906, this conference center. And, uh, and, and they have this place where you, where you have your meetings. You could probably seat about 600. And they can open it up, and people sit out everywhere and get chairs and sit up behind. And, and uh, that, that, that 
tabernacle, I think they call it. It's, old, it's a redwood, you know, it's got redwood beams and timbers. This thing is old. It's been there like 40, 50 years. Well, that's where I was teaching this weekend. And, and I was standing there in that pulpit. I started thinking about all of the great preachers from all over the world that have stood in that pulpit at Mount Hermon. And as I was standing there, I thought of three of them. When I was a young guy, when I was a young man, Dale, <laughs> when I was a young pastor, three times, I was what, 27, I just I was 27, 28, three times in a real short period of time, I went down to Mount Hermon. Now I can think of a fourth one just came to my mind. To hear four different guys. I had read their books. I had heard them on the radio. I would read their articles in Moody Monthly. I had appreciated these guys from afar. And so I got in my car and I drove down to Mount Hermon. First guy I heard. Um, some of you know this guy. He's ministered to you. He's probably in his late 60s now. So a couple years ago, what does he do? Now, he went and got a new wife, divorced the one he had. He's taught on Solomon. But that's what he did. Uh, the second guy I went to hear, this guy, this guy was a phenomenal communicator. Unbelievable. Man, I mean, they packed the place out to hear this guy. Guy's good, no question about it. So what did he do? Well, he got involved with one of his associate pastors' uh, wives and then denied it, covered it up, lied about it, got found out. Uh, great preacher. Uh, third guy was doing a uh, conference, and uh, it was for pastors and, and their wives. So Mary and I go down there to hear him. And the uh, guy's really good. And as I'm listening to this guy, and all these other young pastors listen to this guy, what we don't know is that this guy's got an affair going on with a gal in his church that he's counseling with. And he got found out and he had to leave his church. And I'm going to tell you something, this ever could preach. Guy knew the Bible back and, backwards and forwards. Then I'm thinking about a fourth guy. Incredible student. Incredible scholar. I mean, this guy knows the stuff. This guy knows the Greek. This guy knows the Hebrew. This guy knows the Spanish. I mean, he knows stuff you haven't even thought about. <laughs> Unbelievable mind. What an intellect. Uh, he's not with his wife anymore either. Now, that's just four to come to mind without me really doing much thinking. Uh, you know what my point was? As I'm standing there at Mount Hermon, Behind that, and, and, the, and the best Bible teachers in the world come there to teach. See, that's why when I read about Jeroboam, I don't get bored. I'm looking for every hint I can get. I'm looking for every clue I can get that can keep me from ruining my life. Can you go a few more on Jeroboam? You guys still there? Next week, we're going to have IV drips when you come in. <laughs> uh, I'm going to skip some stuff, but let me give you a couple more. 
uh, Jeroboam experienced a great miracle. And you get in the 13. Now remember, what's he doing? He wants to be a priest, so he's making sacrifices, right? So here's what happens. Verse thir uh, chapter 13, 1. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah. Where's Judah? South. Because there were no men of God in the north who'd stand up to him. So God brings a guy down from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense, and he cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, 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 thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, that's Judah, catch this, Josiah by name. You guys know about Josiah? We'll study it. Josiah, 290 years later, would come and do what this guy's telling him he's going to do. Uh, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense on you. The human bones shall be burned on you. In other words, 290 years down the road, I'm going to send Josiah, and he's going to clean up this mess. And Josiah did that. Then he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart. The ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Now it came about when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, that, this is wild, that Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. But his hand, when he, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. He speaks against the prophet. He says, Seize him. And God immediately withers his hand. That's a great miracle. That's also a great discipline and a great judgment. But see, that's how far this guy had gone, that God physically had to judge him. So his, so his hand is withered. Verse 6. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat, this is amazing, the Lord your God. He didn't say the Lord my God. Please entreat the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and it became as it was before. Great miracle. Imagine that. And you know the great news is, he saw this great miracle, he experienced this great miracle, and it turned his heart to God, and he followed God all the rest of his days. No. No. Sometimes we get this thing in our mind, man, those miracles in the Bible, wouldn't they be great? Man, if there are miracles like that, I know all these people come to Christ. No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. Do you know that sometimes, guys, the mercy of God, the mercy of God hardens people's hearts. Did you know that? Some saw Jesus do miracles, and they turned to him. Others saw him do it, and it hardened their hearts. That's what happened to Jeroboam. It hardened his heart. The mercy of God hardened his heart. See, we don't realize how corrupt our hearts are, do we? We give people way too much credit. Well, people are so willing to come to God. You know, they're not willing. We want to run the show. We want to be king of our lives just as Jeroboam was king of his deal. I don't have time to do this. But if you look in 2 Kings 14, Jeroboam stages a great deception. He sends his wife to see the prophet Elijah, who's now blind. He tells her to cover up. He tells her to take some loaves and to go see this guy. He's got a son who's sick. You can read it later. Uh, 
she goes in to see Ahijah, who's blind, and he says, welcome, wife of Jeroboam. Because God told him, hey, she's coming. And what he does is he dispenses judgment on the house, and he tells her what's going to happen, and they have a son, and, and the son is going to die, but God is going to be gracious, and that son uh, will, will be with the Lord. But everybody else in uh, Jeroboam's uh, family, it's going to be it. Um, nobody had more opportunity, no one had greater opportunity than Jeroboam. Nobody had a greater future than Jeroboam. Nobody had a greater uh, offer from God to do something great for the kingdom of God. But he didn't do it. Let me give you a last principle on Jeroboam. Jeroboam left a great legacy of sin. A great legacy of sin. Uh, Herbert Lockyer uh, says this about, uh, about Jeroboam. And this is really significant, guys. Because Jeroboam was the first king in the line of 19 kings coming in Israel. Okay? Here's what it says about him. The consequences of national idolatry continued for 18 kings set upon the throne of Judah after his death, and not one of them gave up the golden calves. That should say, set on the throne of Israel. It was a misprint. Of all the kings that followed him, not one of them gave up the golden calves. Of 15, it was said of them that they departed not from the sin of Jeroboam, as with the king, so with the people who continued to walk in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. Turn with me real quickly to 2 Kings 17, verse 22. Last week, we talked about Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, as well, had an opportunity to go to the Hall of Fame, but he went to the Hall of Shame. So did uh, Jeroboam. 2 Kings 17, 22. When he had torn, I'm going to start in 21. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. That was his legacy. He was a great sinner and led other people in sin. Then note this. And the sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did, and they did not depart from them. Until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all his servants and prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. For 200 years, every king walked in the ways of Jeroboam. That's the legacy that this guy left. Uh, Gentlemen, uh, Jeroboam sought greatness, and that was his downfall. He didn't seek the greatness of God. He sought the greatness of Jeroboam. Let me end with two verses. Okay? Jeremiah 45.5. Hey, you've got a business. You've got a life. What are you doing with your life? How do you want to live your life? Well, I bet you you don't want to waste your life. Uh, and you know, it's not a bad thing to want to do something great. But you know what, guys? There's a difference between doing something great for God. We live for the glory of God. You know what that means? We live for the greatness of God. Lord, do with me whatever will bring glory in your life. If you want to live, live for the greatness of God. Live for the glory of God. Lord, I want my life to count. Jeroboam didn't live for the, for the glory of God or for the greatness of God. Jeroboam lived for the greatness of himself. Jeremiah 45.5 says this. In the King James it says, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek 
them not. Do you want to be great? Do you want to be great in the world's eyes? Do you want to be great in the eyes of men? Do you want people to know about you? Do you want people to applaud you? Do you want to make it in the business world so you can be on the cover of Fortune? You know what God says? Seek them not. Think about Solomon. Solomon was on the cover of Fortune 500 how many times? He's still on the cover. We still talk about Solomon. If Solomon had spent half the time that he did building his kingdom and building a son, what difference would have been made? So how many hours are you putting in consistently? And why are you doing it? See, there's more to life than building a business or building a career. Have you got kids? Have you got grandkids? It's your job to build them to the glory of God. I'll give you one other verse. Matthew 6, 33. See, are you seeking greatness? Seek it not. Here's the last verse. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. All these things shall be added unto you. Um, this guy's life is a downer. And, and I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know how many of these guys we're going to study, but 32 out of the 40 were losers and downers. And they were kings and they were famous. And now they're dead. Uh, we're still living. We're still making choices. Let's make the right choices. Why don't you... Hey, hey, let me throw something out to you. Why don't you hit the finish line married to your wife? Okay? Let's do that. Stay married. Just stay married. I know you got issues. I know you got stuff. I, I know that. Everybody does. But you know what? Stay married. Be a man. Take the hit. If you don't understand me, yeah, you're probably right. Stay married. Be a man of God. God will bless you. So, Lord, we pray for ourselves. Help us to be men. We don't want to be like this guy, Lord. We don't want, we've studied two kings and they're both in the hall of shame. We don't want to do that. So, Lord, today, tomorrow when we get up, help us to walk according to your word. And, Lord, when we're tempted to step out from under your word and to make that wrong, that wrong move, or the, or, Lord, remind us of this guy. Remind us of Solomon. Remind us. Lord, you put this in the Bible for us. These things were written for our instruction as examples to us. Don't let us be stupid. Let us be wise. By your grace and mercy, we ask these things in Jesus' name.